Can we just dive into one of the hottest topics in the Norwegian media right now, the plans ahead for, for Hunter Group? And maybe before you share the vision for the company ahead, can you also just tell a bit about the history? Because there is a previous chapter in Hunter that I guess is relevant to know about for new investors as well. So can you just paint a picture why Hunter now and the plans ahead? So Hunter Group has been, uh, the history is uh, that first it was an oil service company, which is many years ago. And then in 2018, um, Arne became the uh, main shareholder in the company and also took in eight VLCCs. Um, so the company has, the, the current team has been involved with building VLCCs, getting them delivered on charter and selling VLCCs. Then all the vessels were sold, uh, and at the moment, uh, last one year ago, there was it was only a shell company basically, but it still had the three key people in there. One person who is very capable on the technical side, um, with forty years experience in that field, and then uh, a CEO and a CFO who's been through uh, through this this uh, these procedures with uh, shuttering out vessels. Then, one year ago, I came in as the chairman. It was basically nothing in the company other than the people and, and a CO2 tanker project, which is very exciting, but it can take many, many years before actually CO2 transport will become a viable business plan. That idea is kind of sleeping. Uh, the concept is ready. But we need a long-term contract to build a ship. Uh, and if we are the front runner on that, on CO2 um, transport, probably it could be quite easy to multiply that and build more ships if you have contracts in the other end. Nobody will want to build something like this without to have having a contract. If they have private money, you need to have the rest of the value chain intact. So from the part you got involved, how many months have you worked with the strategy you're putting forward today that is quite, you know, newsworthy? We uh, we believe a lot in the VLCC market, um, the very large good carrier market for the next uh, three to four to five years. Uh, from that time, we think it's a big chance that the market will be overbuilt, so the market will fall again. So this summer, we're looking at the old vessels uh, that didn't have too many years left to be able to capture this kind of three to five year window. And then this autumn, the management came up with something I think is a lot better, which is using the relationships the company already has, using the contract sort of templates that they already have with major players in this in the shipping industry and just take a position on the fixed price in and simply just charter out uh, to the same trading company. So what does what is this really then? Well, it's a pure play on the Echo, Echo VLCC market with Scrubber. The next three years, I would say with an immense leverage because uh, it's uh, it's uh, higher on the price that's below the 20-year average for these kind of ships, below what you would need if you wanted to build a new ship in the lifetime of the ship, but you only have this exposure for three years. And that means that if the market goes bananas over the next three years, we will capture that. Uh, if the ship has a technical problem, it's not really a big problem for for Hunter because we don't carry that. We 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 hire in and we hire out, so it's not really our problem. Price we get is is just simply 
quite complicated calculation of an index. Can you explain a bit the risk profile then? Because why invest in this adventure versus, you know, established tanker companies positioned in this cycle? Is it just like a high risk, high reward game? Or do you also want to balance the downside? Or is that hard to, hard to do in this case? I would say it's a, it's a very much a high risk, high reward game. So when I look at the investment I have in Hunter, I could at least multiply that by four uh, if you look at the exposure we actually get. And that's where the fun, fun starts. So uh, it, it's uh, with the little, little money, you get a lot of potential upside. And the downside is definitely 100%. But I would say on the risk reward basis, I mean, you have to think of it as buying a ship with kind of uh, at least 95% leverage, owning it for three years and then selling it. But you don't have to deal with buying and selling the ship. It's it's kind of, uh, you just own uh, the uh, surplus or or deficit uh, income on, on that ship for the next three years. So meaning that uh, if uh, you have rates uh, at, at the, if the rates reaches the analyst's uh, consensus estimates for the next three years, that we are netting north of on the two ships we have today and north of $60,000 per day. And that is uh, a couple of million dollars per month. And uh, the company market cap is, yeah, just north of $20 million. I, I find quite attractive that uh, actually on the consensus estimates of the analysts, you get almost 10% return per month on the two ships we have today. And we are able also to uh, take in at least one more ship with the current balance sheet. Can you explain a bit your thought process behind this market we're entering? Because of course there's a huge sentiment and it looks good for many different reasons. But the fascinating thing with this market is how easily it can shift through geopolitics, big nations, OPEC, etc. How do you build this analysis in your head and where do you also calculate worst case scenario and what is the worst case scenario from the market perspective on the rates, etc.? First of all, uh, I think I'll start with uh, with the reason why we we invested uh, like this, um, and the reason why I put my own money on it. And that's kind of first of all. I mean, uh, it's a risk. I, I see it as a big risk that uh, the oil price can fall quite significantly during the next year uh, or two. And the reason is that uh, Saudi Arabia has taken basically uh, responsibility for almost all production cuts while the US production has exploded in the same period. This is not the lasting um, situation, I think. So within the next few years, it's a big chance that Saudi will produce more oil uh, at the expense of the rest of the world. And the more oil you get from the Middle East, the longer the businesses and the higher the rates. That's one thing. And also the lower the, the price of oil, the more the bigger chance there is that it will be a contango in the prices. So the prices forward in time is higher than the price now. Reason being that it takes time to shut down production. It takes also time to ramp it up. And therefore, I mean, a bull case scenario is that Saudi just pumps out a few million barrels extra per day. The oil price plummets, you get the contango and you get a big, big chunk of oil being uh, stored on ships. So that's sort of a bull case scenario, sort of just on the situation, on the oil market situation. Then you have another, I would say, 
uh, scenario with the geopolitical risk that um, there is uh, a history in, in tankers that the more geopolitical risk, the more expensive it becomes to transport oil. At the moment, uh, with the situation in the Red Sea, that doesn't seem to end anytime soon. Um, or if it ended tomorrow, we would have still logistical uh, issues for the next uh, for, for, for next months to come. And it's quite easy. I mean, if you fill the Suez Max, it takes about one million barrels. Uh, you can take it uh, through the Red Sea and uh, through the Suez and up to the, to, uh, to the markets there. If you can't go through the Suez, why not put on two million barrels in in the VLCC and go around a Cape Good Hope? So this. The difference between the Swissmark rates and the VLCC rate should be higher than it has been uh, the last few months because of this. So that's sort of the the short-term kind of um, upside. Then you also have an, a record low order book. I mean, you always have to look at uh, how many ships are on water, how many ships are in the yard. And uh, at the moment, there are very few ships in the yard. So it's a visibility that the next three years, it's almost impossible to build the market to pieces. This is why I feel we found the sweet spot, a very interesting sweet spot. And now it's just to, to try and and, uh, and milk that sweet spot as much as possible. And uh, hopefully we can have a few more ships on so that it will be a more liquid uh, ETF that we're creating. And I think that's realistic, but it, it has to come in uh, uh, at the time when we're able to do a good deal, because at the moment, it might not be possible to do it at the price we want to do it on because it has to. It's very important that it is on a, on a correct price because you you don't you, you do not want. Uh, it becomes very expensive uh, if you if you if you get too bullish when you have some kind of geopolitical situation and then uh, next month the problem is solved and uh, markets are uh, the oil demand is going down. Saudi is cutting a bit, uh, continuing to cut and. And uh, then it's not as fun. So uh, and now you're on to the downside. I mean, uh, if you the rate we have taken the ships in on is roughly on a on a traditional ship that would be thirty five thousand uh, dollars roughly, and and you can add seventeen thousand dollars on a Echo Scrubber fitted uh, ship uh, that brings us to sort of roughly fifty two thousand. And then um, and yes, I mean the the tank rates can be much lower than that. So uh, yes, there is a risk. There's always a risk associated. So, but but to summarize what you're saying, this is also precision work ahead because you don't want to make the wrong deal at this stage because then it's going to be very hard to course correct. This is the short timeline we're talking about here. Yeah, and I think so. Though it's also a very important hedge to me uh, because on the other side I have oil service exposure, and uh, and uh, it's the kind of uh, falling oil price. Uh, it wouldn't be a big crisis for uh, my uh, oil service or for the oil service company's uh, revenues because they have long contracts, but it won't look good. So that it's good to have a company that makes more money if the oil price falls as well. Let's make the transition to oil service then because we wanted to discuss that topic a bit today. Can you just paint the overall picture on the oil service industry? And maybe also add the offshore industry because it's getting quite a big industry with the renewables adding up as well. But of course, you know, it's a different sector, but still maybe they are in the same supply chains a bit. Exactly. I mean, you have, uh, when you look at the uh, the oil service value chain, you have some parts that sort of 
basically this market hasn't really been supplied with new vessels and new equipment for the last 10 years. You had completion of equipment that was ordered before 2014, but not much new ordered the last 10 years. And this is obviously an opportunity, um, but then the, things have happened to different parts of the value chain of the last 10 years too. I mean, the companies are working much more efficient now than they did, they did before. The drilling programs are much more just in time than they were before. So it is not evident that you need as much equipment now as you did then to produce the same oil. And then uh, what we see is that it takes, sort of if you, if you start, you start with seismic. The other problem is that you have fewer customers now than you had before. And uh, it seems like, uh, yeah, they definitely need less seismic than they did before for some reason. And, and uh, it seems to be too much spare capacity for now. It will probably come at some point, but at the moment it looks a bit stretched. Then you go to the rig industry. And uh, what we do know is that it's very expensive to have a rig um, stacked. That's a nightmare to have a rig stacked. So, so that's sort of the uh, the issue there now is that many uh, many drilling companies uh, sees that it takes longer than they than, than they thought to get the utilization that gives them uh, the possibility to reactivate rigs, um, and also to just get the utilization they need to, to make money over time because it's very expensive to have a rig idle. So that part of the oil service sort of uh, the value chain, I, I'm not super bullish on right now. It, I think it will come at some point. It will come. And you also need drilling rigs to, um, to drill uh, CO2 wells. So uh, in the future, in the 30s, uh, probably you will be using oil rigs to create CO2 wells, which is quite interesting. Then when you come to everything that floats, so all the subsea vessels, the supply vessels, uh, and so forth, you can see now, and latest today, Dof Group got a contract to fix a cable from a wind farm in the Southern North Sea. Here is the pressure from the wind industry and from the oil service industry. Fantastic. And also you still have a market where nothing has been built for a long time. Uh, what they say themselves, the companies have been sort of that, okay, but uh, the renewable industries are, are not really, it's not really important for us because the oil and gas sector pays a lot more. On the other side, I would call it a really nice stop loss to have these renewable companies ready to take spare capacity. So this is where I have put uh, really my tips on the table. Then you have the FPSO, FPSO part where you pump up the oil. It's it also looks good, but uh, also there it's uh, not so expensive refits and, and it's not so easy. So again, the whole if you look at this value chain, I mean uh, the the floating uh, vessels that I just talked about is where I find the best risk reward of two reasons. One is they can work for renewables and conventional, and secondly, it's not so expensive to have many of these vessels in an idle as it is with an oil rig, for example. It makes sense. What are the biggest, if you have decided on that topic, what are then, you know, a couple of red flags that investors should be careful about? Is it, you know, the depth as well and the leveraging part? Because obviously you have worked a lot with high yield, so you know how a balance sheet can turn into trouble in the future. Is that also something you have to be very careful on, on, on the oil service industry, how the balance sheet looks? Or if the market is fine, you, you will be fine regardless? 
I mean, in this sector, it's very little bets right now, but uh, there are some, you know, you want to have that when the tide is going off. So this is, uh, and I would say the sweet spot here, I mean, Doff Group, where I've been part of a restructuring committee for many years and, and uh, sort of really know the bits and pieces in the company. I think it's a great company. It was just overlevered. And now they have, for the next couple of years, they pay only 6% all in for their door debt. I mean, their competitors would have to pay 10% for the same amount of debt if they at all get a leverage of 60% LTV as they have today. Um, which means that uh, you get an extra 8% IRR on your equity just because you have cheap leverage. And then on top of that, it's fantastic to, for the equity holders to own an equity where just uh, every new contract is is giving uh, explosively higher in, uh, income and also long income, not only next year, it's sort of like many years. And that we can say a lot about uh, Brazil, for example, where uh, uh, it takes time to get the contract in place in Brazil. But when you have the contract in place, Petrobras, they pay on time and, and uh, there are huge opportunities in Brazil for, for, uh, for Norwegian-linked uh, shipping companies at the moment. So, so basically, yes, uh, so th this is kind of what you, what you want to look for in this sector is, okay, you, you see, okay, where do you want to be in the value chain and you find that area and then you start to drill down, okay, where can I get most bang for the bucks? Basically, they have zero covenants uh, almost or not zero, but they have very little covenants for the next couple of years, very cheap, that nice loan to value. Okay, so one, one dollar in, in a DOF uh, is the same as two and a half dollar in a oil service company without that and uh, the tide is rising. How, you know, rude of awakening do you see it will be in offshore wind coming soon? Because it's been a lot of talk, a lot of hype, but it's, years are going fast, you know? So how do you, you know, I know you have some quotes about it, but offshore wind, what's your two cents on that project? Maybe from a Norwegian perspective and maybe also from a European perspective. I think what's interesting is that uh, if you listen to many politicians when they say sort of, yes, the wind wind price is uh, on par with uh, other conventional uh, sources, uh, they forget maybe two things. One is that when it blows, the price of electricity is low. The, the electricity produced from wind is the one with the least value, basically. And secondly, the interest rates. I mean, all these calculations are, are done and all the nice folders are done with, uh, with zero interest rates. And now we have four or five, five percent. So it just doesn't work because they have a huge cost when they uh, construct and then they have a 20-year cash flow, for example, um, to pay for it. And obviously, it's extremely interest rate sensitive. And when you look at the other side, on, or the, for example, DOF, where you can pay, pay down the total enterprise value in probably in four years, the interest rate means a lot less. And on top of that, I mean, they only pay 6%, which on the 5.5% uh, interest rate in the US at the moment. So that's quite good. Do you just, uh, maybe that was the narrative after COP that, you know, this gap that we have to fill is just going to be filled with nuclear? Or do you see anything else on technology that makes you curious about what is the potential for, you know, scaling renewables fast? I think uh, it's super important that uh, the world invests uh, in nuclear everywhere uh, where it's possible. Uh, because 
that's the only real alternative. I mean, you have, uh, if you look at Norway as a country, they say, yes, but you know, uh, we can, we can produce a lot of electricity to, to supply our 5 million people in, in Norway. But you know, there are 500 million people in Europe and 1.4 billion Indians. And you need to, you need to have a solution that actually works for the 8 billion people and not the 5 million up in, in, in Norway. So I, I see that, uh, yeah, this could make sense with wind farms many places, but, uh, if you, if you were to fill the energy demand with wind farms, uh, I mean, you have to have the windmills everywhere in Europe almost, and it will destroy nature in, in a way that we don't want. So, um, so therefore I think, uh, uh, nuclear, even though it's expensive, even though it's, uh, there's a lot of construction risk is, um, something that, uh, all, uh, countries uh, needs to think thoroughly about if they want to have a stable non-fossil energy source. That makes sense. Just one uh, topic on shipping that I also want to cover a bit is, you know, your journey with Gram card carriers, because you were very active in that journey for the last couple of years and it has gone very successfully. Can you just explain a bit about that particular segment? Because that's more like a niche segment in the shipping industry, but also a very exciting mega trend with China, EVs and car, etc. How would you summarize that journey for yourself and also maybe what's ahead, do you feel? Oh, and when, when Gram was listed, it was uh, quite leveraged, uh, which I like. Uh, the tide was going up uh, and it sort of, the IPO was kind of the last piece they needed to get things in order. So I found that very, very interesting. Uh, and basically also there, uh, because of many years of a low market, nothing had really been built for a long time. And then China started to export EVs and they started on zero basically. And now they're at five and a half million cars per year. You have uh, 700 uh, uh, car carriers around in the world. And uh, even mm-hmm. though we have a lot of ships on order now, which well, that has come uh, in, in every shipping upturn, you get a lot of ordering. And the question is on car carriers, so is this time different? And I think, I think yes, that now we have a golden age for, uh, for uh, car carriers because of the Chinese situation. Um, I think it can last a bit longer than many people think because, uh, first of all, China's ambitions are huge, but there are also ambitions in Japan and in Korea. All of these places have long transport distances. So you get with a fall in, even though you have a fall in car sales, you could have a quite nice increase in ton mileage going forward. And then you have an interesting situation in that at the moment you have a lot of cars going on containers. Yes, it's possible to transport everything by container, but it's not ideal for the car industry. And uh, it's both more expensive to travel uh, with uh, the use containers and it's, uh, you get uh, more problems with the cars. They get scratches, they get smelly and it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not ideal. And they come into ports that not used to take on in cars. And, uh, and it's just, uh, not ideal. So you have at the moment, it's a bit difficult to quantify, but probably at least, uh, 50 to hundred car, car carriers in def- deficit in today's market. And the Chinese exports are, are increasing faster. It's like, okay, if you, if you have a recession, what would you do in Europe? Would you buy a cheap, uh, Chinese built car or will you buy an expensive European built car? I mean, like. Probably you will buy the Chinese car. 
You also have to remember that uh, a lot of the European and the US uh, car manufacturers, they manufacture cars in Asia as well. So Gram uh, is, for example, uh, transporting Buick uh, from uh, China into Los Angeles, made in America for Americans. But okay, it's <laughs> it actually comes from China. So um, so this is uh, why I think we're into mega trend on car carriers. I think uh, the golden age will uh, be at least through 2026, and then probably it will the market will be more balanced. And again, more balance in shipping often means that the risk of uh, falling rates is higher. How do you piece together higher interest rates, inflation that is a bit hard to predict, onshoring, you know, a war economy? Is this going to be a very interesting time ahead to see how the inflation and interest rates will go? Because it's very, from my perspective, it seems like maybe harder to predict than people expect because I feel the narrative is that it's going to drop quite soon and then let's see, but I'm not so sure that it's that easy with inflation, given the geopolitics, onshoring, and all the initiatives from, from big countries like US, etc. You look back in, um, in 2008, uh, Lehman Brothers was uh, crushed. This, the Fed doesn't want to happen again. I think that's quite clear. So, so what they did last year when you had uh, all the problems with Silicon Valley Bank and other regional banks, they just poured money into the system. So they had used the brakes at the same time as they gave, uh, they went full, full uh, speed forward. And this obviously keeps inflation up. It does. And uh, another thing that uh, is easy to forget is sort of that, uh, well, uh, especially when you sit in Norway, is that uh, in Norway and Sweden, uh, people feel the interest rates immediately because they are floating interest rates. In Denmark, you had a situation where um, a lot of people went from 30-year fixed to five-year fixed, and then they could pay back a lot of the loan through that. And uh, so, so in Denmark, kind of, uh, you haven't really seen the effects of the rising interest rates because uh, people have actually made a profit from it in many cases. And down in Europe, the uh, rest of Europe and Switzerland, people have uh, fixed interest rates, and in the US as well. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of the new bills and the, the first-time buyers that are exposed towards interest rates. And at some point in time, they will feel it for, for real, yes, but it takes time. And um, so this is what makes it a bit tricky. I think you have this, as you say, this war economy, the, the liquidity is poured in. People are having uh, jobs. They get paid a bit more every year. When you look at it, uh, a lot of homes at the moment this uh, is quite affordable as well for for the people who receive uh, normal salaries because uh, you you kind of uh, they, they have always just been borrowing five times income for example and they do that now as well and so the banks since 2008 have sort of uh, put into their uh, equation that uh, that they um uh that that, that that you can't borrow more than five times your income for example and uh, so, so if the interest rate is five or three, it takes a lot of time before it actually really tightens uh, the economies, except for Norway and Sweden. So, how do you feel it's going to play out? What are the signals you look for the most yourself when you're trying to, you know, map out the scenarios? And you maybe also will be an interesting year with U.S. election as well. Seems like that's going to be a very interesting uh, election. 
So I think it's quite clear that the, the U.S. I mean, if you look at their state finances, it doesn't really make sense at all. But uh, in an uh, in an election year, I think uh, we'll be fine. Uh, they will save uh, the consumer, uh, and this is kind of part of the uh, issue in many other places than than the U.S. That the a lot more politicians than before are just pouring money into the economy. So that will in turn create inflation and at the same time, higher inflation is and higher interest rates are biting into many companies. And if you look at the high yield market, for example, in the States, I mean, you have uh, a lot of companies that are cash flow negative, especially if they, when they refinance. And this is, uh, this is where it's going to be exciting and at some point, you will the market will break, uh, but it's just it taking more time than the Norwegian uh, average Norwegian analyst would uh, would predict because of this uh, floating fixed interest rate scenario. That's a good point. If you just wanna, it's hard to give specific advice to people, but is it time to reconsider? You know, having everything in index funds and putting some chips on the high yield market because it's been you know for many years that didn't seem like a very attractive place to be, but I know you worked in that field for so many years. How has that momentum changed now? And what's like the guiding principle to use when putting money into the high yield market that now looks very attractive for the first time in a long time? Also, I mean, um, it's important when you look at, uh, if you look at the high yield space, at least how, how I look at it, you have five different risks that you have to think about. And two of them, you don't get paid to take. Uh, one of those risks is uh, client concentration in a high yield fund. Uh, you, do, you don't want to be in a fund where uh, one big decision maker can make uh, make a lot of trouble. So we've spent the last uh, 10 years just to, to try and sort of diversify our client base as much as possible, also geographically. So now we have countries, we have other clients spread all over Europe. Um, and we have also um, different types of customers. So it's kind of it's a bit like a bank. You don't want all the clients to take the money this one in one day. The bank will go bankrupt. But then it's uh, another one, which is uh, hedging capital call risk, which is uh, kind of a bit uh, tricky as well, because uh, uh, every high yield fund out there, they say that they, of course, they don't take FX risk. But the risk many of them take is um, is the uh, hedging capital call risk because when they buy a bond and for example US dollars if they're Norwegian quarter denominated and we saw when we went into the pandemic the uh, dollar went up 50% or something like that in 10 days and then you get a capital call of 50% of that investment at the same time uh, the liquidity in the same investment is maybe quite low so this we solved with having um, We've also worked very hard over 10 years having uh, clients from uh, basically uh, in different currencies as well, so that uh, we kind of net net don't really have a big uh, currency risk in the portfolio. So then you go over to the three risks that you get paid for, and it is well, the most important is the corporate risk. And uh, that's where sort of the Nordic market is quite special. I mean, we have an ICR and just coverage ratio of uh, sit around five in the portfolio. That sort of translates into a lot more uh, solid companies rating wise than, than sort of the single B that we kind of have. 
And the reason is that uh, a lot of the companies in the Nordics have, uh, 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 especially in the cyclical space, you have a lot of companies with good near-term cash flow. And that good near-term cash flow, they have levered. So it doesn't really matter how the cycle goes, we will get the money back. That's all, at least what we, what we think. Then it's the duration risk of the interest rate and the duration risk of the, uh, of the bond itself. So you can have a floating bond that's 10 years. If you then have a market crash, the spread will go out and the bond price will go down, even though you might make some money on uh, yeah, that, that as a case. And then if you have a fixed bond that's 10 years, when the market goes down, you will have the two factors working against each other. One is probably the interest rates will also fall so that uh, the price of the bond will go up. But on the other hand, the spread will go out and the price of the bond will go down. So for example, in 2008, you could buy a Swedbank hybrids, long hybrids on 40% on par. Then you obviously had some uh, duration issues on the, on the, uh, on the, on the bond in, in, in addition to the interest rate changes because the spread went out. And then if you have a long duration, it doesn't look good. So at the moment we sort of, we have increased duration by roughly one year from last year in portfolio. It's still quite low, um, below two years. And the duration until, uh, until maturity is also below three years. Meaning that we're not really betting on anything else than the corporate risk. And all that with a historically low corporate risk, yeah, we get eight, 9% interest rates. It's quite nice. And then. I look at it from uh, sort of when you invest in, in, in bonds, uh, you need to think about which currency you're invested in. And if you look at the last 15 years, you'd see that, okay, the Norwegian corner towards the Swiss franc, for example, um, has weakened uh, on average, is it two, 2% roughly, more than the interest rate spread within the two countries uh, have sort of um, indicated. And every time you had a crisis, the Swiss franc went up. So, okay. So if your high yield investment is your insurance, the question is, uh, would you have that insurance in Swiss francs or in the Norwegian Coder? It depends sort of so which pocket have you kind of idea do you have with your money? Because it's quite important that it just doesn't go down the drain with everything else when there is a crisis. So when it comes to equities, this currency issue, it doesn't really exist because you have, uh, uh, if the currency goes down, you usually get uh, paid with uh, the equity, it becomes uh, more worth. Like, so that, that's why uh, it doesn't really, it's kind of more self-hedged than the hardcore sort of uh, bonds of that, which is the company has to pay you back and in that currency that you lent out. So uh, I have, a mix now of Swiss francs and yeah, a bit Norwegian color as well, but mostly Swiss francs. As, uh, and it's my fire insurance, basically. I think that's the perfect summary. Also, you know, uh, great that you, you know, it's it's maybe a bit more complex than people believe because of the currency issue and everything uh, like you perfectly summarized. So time flies by so fast. So we have some quick fire questions. So I just want to dive straight into them. So. Can you give us some emerging markets you think people should check out that usually goes out of the radar? If you look at the emerging markets at the moment, that uh, that kind of is probably most exciting. It's Saudi Arabia and uh, India. 
there are 1.4 billion Indians. That's the good start. And Saudi Arabia is kind of opening up with a lot of huge projects. My competence is not investing in that, uh, in those countries directly, but actually the Nordic markets are a derivative of the emerging markets. And the Norway is an emerging market kind of. Um, we can uh, sell our, we go in with the tankers into India and the bulkers and the container ships and uh, whatever there is and the oil rigs. And I think that's a better approach to to make money on on uh, on the foreign market than than trying to go dive into it. Uh, and uh, because then then you have to deal with local jurisdictions that you you need to be a specialist on and so forth. So uh, I think on that side, I just make it try to make it easy and and uh, find the derivatives um, of of the emerging markets. And China too difficult because of politics or it looking increasingly appetizing? No, I think, um, again, uh, the derivative of China is sort of delivering goods to them, buying, uh, building ships there and taking them to, to the world market. Um, I think, again, I, I've become very humble when I go for emerging markets. I've seen that political risk uh, very close up. Through, um, uh, we took care of investment in Russia for for 15 years, and um, I saw it was a fantastic time. Uh, but I also saw that um, a lot is very difficult to be an expert in uh, in a different country with a different culture than our own. Very true. So the next one is, what do you feel is the most undervalued listed company? I know that's a difficult one, but your perspective with today's knowledge that could change in tomorrow's landscape. I mean. Uh, I think the most interesting sort of uh, derivative of uh, yeah, well, was, was the most interesting low-value company today is uh, William Williamson Holding. It's a fantastic setup. Uh, they are making tons of money on the car and uh, the roll-on, roll-off uh, car carriers at the moment. Um, you get sort of roughly you pay forty euro uh, for every kroner in there. The company, it's a good thing with the company. It's sort of, uh, it's well run. It's good people uh, employed around and, and they, they have a history of uh, more than 150 years. Um, so it's on the investor relations side, they have to improve and they have a lot of pressure from the outside on that. And I think in a way there, uh, and we saw already now that uh, they increased in dividends by 80% from last year. I think it probably will increase more as well um, going forward because in order to grow with their subsidiaries without selling below 50% in the subsidiaries, they will not be able to raise equity at a decent price. And this is important for a company that wants to shape the maritime industry. So, so I think Williamson long-term will probably have a lower discount to NAV in two years than they have now. And then uh, DOF that we just touched upon, I mean, that is uh, a levered play in the market that's uh, really taking off and sort of risk reward wise i mean the equity there should um, should double uh, the next uh, couple of years interesting so next one we talked about this before but I, i'll ask it again when do you put one percent of your assets in a bitcoin now you have all the etfs up and running as well so is it tempting now not at all and uh, i think uh, the reason is uh, that a currency that where you don't know who runs it, kind of, you don't know where it came from, it's just there, and where which is very, very good to hide money and to launder money. I think uh, 
it's uh, probably something that uh, will not exist in 10 years uh, because it's just uh, not possible to control it properly. And China has already, I mean, that it's forbidden in China and I think uh, other jurisdictions will follow. That's a hot take. Let's see in 10 years and maybe have a recap. So uh, two books people must read in 2024. That's a good question. Um, I think uh, for what we do, I mean, that's one is in Norwegian though. But uh, Paul Ringholm, uh, who's, I would say, uh, the leading star in, in uh, fixed income in, in Norway, he's written a book on how to become uh, wealthy on on, uh, on debt, Erik Pogel. Uh, that's a good one. And, um, and then uh, another one for, that's more, again, in Norwegian, it, it's an interesting book if you want to sort of get up and running in in, uh, in the stock market. That's called uh, Aksje Skåre. And also a, a, a way into uh, to, uh, to understanding stocks without, become, without having too much background in it. And I think that's um, a good intro for many. Otherwise, it's to read the financial news every single day. I agree. So, so the last one, I know you love, you know, going on expeditions. So one or two unique destinations that people should visit. I mean, you've been all over the place almost, but do you have any, any, any favorite moments you wish more people could, could try out? Because I mean, you, you have a long list of course, but do you have any, any particular, uh, suggestions? Up north in Norway is, uh, sort of, uh, partly where you come from actually. It's a very nice place, but uh, I think the unique place that's sort of where it becomes more and more difficult to uh, enjoy in the future, that is uh, Svalbard. I would go to Long Airbnb and Svalbard before it's too late, before the the restrictions are too uh, uh, big. The government is working to make it uh, a lot more difficult than it was uh, to travel around Svalbard, but it's still uh, possible to enjoy it in, in, in an acceptable way, I would say. Uh, they have uh, four four months of uh, sunshine, uh, twenty four hours, and then four months of complete darkness in the air. So it's uh, uh, and all seasons are just as interesting. Oh, perfect, Morten! Thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure to host you once again. So thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me. If you like this episode and the content we produce, head over to my YouTube channel. Just type in Christopher Vonheim. See you next time. All opinions expressed by Christopher Warnheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Warnheim. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Warnheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only.